Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Zero trust cybersecurity is on everyone's minds these days. Anyone that's responsible for an information system. For an update on what's going on at the Defense Department, we turn to the director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's Chief Information Officer's Office, Randy Resnick. Mr. Resnick, good to have you with us. It's great to be here, Tom. I really appreciate it. And maybe just help us by telling us how the office that you run fits into the whole DOD-CIO structure, and there is a a, a DOD-wide Zero Trust strategy that's going to take a right. couple of years, three, four more years till they get it done. Tell us how this all works from an apparatus standpoint. Right. Okay. So mechanically, this is good timing for this interview because we are two years at the end of January as a formed portfolio office, a zero trust portfolio office. Prior to the formation of the Zero Trust Portfolio Office in the DOD CIO, there was no integrated, synchronized place in the Department of Defense that actually made sure that the topic of Zero Trust was being worked or synchronized uh, across the services. So what senior leadership in the DOD uh, three years ago was concerned about is that everybody would go their own way and they would start building and installing potential zero trust solutions, and then you would have interoperability problems. And so they predicted that that issue immediately and started working towards a synchronization office, which ultimately turned out to be a zero trust portfolio office. It was placed inside the DOD CIO, and it reports directly to the DOD CISO, who currently is uh, Mr. Dave McEwen. I report directly to him, and he reports directly to Honorable Sherman, the CIO. And I imagine that there is some cost consideration here, too, if you don't have to buy tens of thousands of different tools. It may not show up in any one place, but if every component is chasing its own zero-trust tool set. I, I know they say zero trust is not a product, but it's also not free. Right. That Two years ago, it's, it, it's even worse than that. Two years ago, there was no definition of what zero trust meant for the Department of Defense, let alone the rest of the world. There were numerous confusing uh, vendors that were saying they had zero trust solutions, and then they were trying to um, sell these solutions to uh, folks in the Department of Defense, and people were extremely confused because they didn't know what they were buying and what outcome really was being achieved by buying a one-off. So when we came on board and was formed as a portfolio office, that was one of the main things, the first things that we f we worked on is let's define what zero trust needs to be and do, what outcome do we want to achieve, uh, et cetera. So uh, you'll see in the first year that we were formed, we produced a lot of foundational documentation. And everything that we're doing right now in the second year and forward is building on that foundation and actually executing on it now. And, of course, the Defense Department likes to talk in terms of milestones. And I think the end goal, I think, is something like 26 or 27 for full zero trust. What are your milestones for 24? What do you hope to accomplish in this 11 months left sure. of this year. Sure. So when we started out uh, two years ago, we tried to determine how long would it take an enterprise the size of the Department of Defense, which is very large, to move to a zero trust cybersecurity uh, configuration? It's never been done before at this scale. And for many reasons, I'll summarize it. Uh, we settled on five fiscal years. So that wound up for us to be the end of fiscal 27. So we set 
the deadline or a goal, the strategy that we had to achieve target level zero trust by the end of 27. So with the definition that we created for zero trust, which was 91 activities for target and 152 activities total for advanced zero trust, it would take five, we set five years to achieve target ZT. Target ZT for us was defined as the ability to stop an adversary lateral movement and exploitation of data. So that was a key outcome that we sought to achieve. And our definition of the 91 activities, we believe gets you there. So in terms of what we are doing in 24, in 23, what we did is we worked to achieve and get a lot of resources, funding, priority within department, uh, a lot of outreach, and most importantly, the Department of Defense's implementation plans, which came to us at the end of October 2023, just a few months ago. Those implementation plans described at a granular great detail exactly how each component was going to achieve target level zero trust before or on the end of 27. We have that right now, and we evaluated all of it. I'm extremely pleased about what we received. In the end, I can't say uh, better things about it. We are really in a, in, a, in a good shape in terms of the plan. So what are we going to do in the remainder of fiscal 24 or calendar 24? It's all about execution. In order to do execution, we have to experiment on configurations that could achieve target level zero trust. It's easier said than done. What it requires is a, a number of vendors coming together, teaming, and integrating their products together to achieve the, the 91 or the close to 91 ZT activities. Uh, not any single vendor is going to be able to achieve it on their own. That's why I'm saying that. So we need to pilot or test these configurations to actually see uh, if it hits target level zero trust. So that's our plan as a portfolio office is to demonstrate multiple, multiple pilots across each one of our courses of action. So we could present to the components, DOD at large, many, many options that they could think about procuring or choosing in any configuration. So it reduces their risk of guessing whether or not something achieves target or not. And that, that accelerates zero trust implementation and gets us to end of 27 faster. That's what we're doing this year is trying to orchestrate as many as maybe 12 to 15 pilots for the remainder of the year. We are speaking with Randy Resnick, director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's Office of the Chief Information Officer. And how do you prioritize where you begin with those 12 pilots? Is there a risk management type of flavor that comes into this such that this is what we need to do most critically. This is the most important network that we have to protect. Right. So we're not looking necessarily at the networks. We're looking more about the technologies. And something like that could only work if you already have like the solutions in front of you and then you could prioritize. The reality is that there's not too many vendor configurations that have come our way in the numbers that would allow us to do it. So if we want to do 12 or 15 pilots, maybe there's we, we're aware of 20 configurations of partnerships amongst vendors that we're aware of. So instead, what we're saying is that course of action one is installing zero trust equipment on the existing infrastructure that's already laid down in the DOD. So we call that course of action one. Course of action two is a complete greenfield solution where you're going with a commercial vendor, a cloud vendor, a CSP, cloud service provider 
to implement ZT for you in the cloud, and you would move your users, your applications, your data, your workloads into that new cloud, and you would inherit zero trust. There's more to it, but basically that's it. Well, how does that tie course, into the big, you know, multiple award contract that the DOD just awarded, you know, I guess it was last year now. J, right, JWCC? Right. Right. So the four cloud computing vendors uh, that won that award, those are the four vendors that we are engaging with to see whether or not they could hit target level or higher within a, a JWCC cloud. We're not tied to the JWCC directly. But if you have a deadline of fiscal 27 to achieve zero trust, it's obvious that anything that's going on in the JWCC, when we start approaching 27, it's going to have to be zero trust compliant. And so those four vendors are aware of that today. And so that's why we're working with them and they're working with us to start putting together the ideas and the functionality and the testing to actually assert or to assess whether or not they could achieve target or even advanced. And so that's that's what we mean by COA 2. COA 3 is an on-prem cloud. Uh, there's a number of examples of that, like uh, DISA has their private clouds. Stratus is a, is a perfect example of a private cloud. <clears throat> you could have a, an on-prem private cloud anywhere in the DOD. There are benefits and use cases for on-prem clouds. There could be some data and mission that simply can't go on a commercial cloud regardless of whether or not it's JWCC or not. So in our strategy, we've asked the components to choose any combination of the three. So we have received in the implementation plans essentially a hybrid solution amongst COAs 1, 2, and 3 that the services and the components are choosing to achieve target ZT across their entire domain. We're very pleased by that. So getting back to the question, we want to do at least three pilots for COA 1, three pilots for COA 2, and three pilots for COA 3, so that we could present a smorgasbord that's even that the services and components could choose from without leaving anyone out or prioritizing one over the other. And th this will continue in fiscal 25 and beyond, so this list will grow over time. You know, in fiscal 25, we'll do another 12 to 15. So then you have 30 answers. Industry is starting to pick up on this pace. They're starting to get it, and we're seeing very positive partnerships being formed now between multiple vendors to try to map out to the 91 activities. And is there any way this maps over to the other big DOD-wide effort, and that is the development of JADC2 and each armed forces component that will help make up the JADC2, giant right. network of networks and so forth? I would think right. zero trust is a huge consideration there, too. Right. Right. I wouldn't say zero trust is a critical path for JADC2. The term they use is it's an enabler of JADC2. So it's probably the number one amongst other equals for enablers of JADC2. It is extremely closely tied. So the success that we have in zero trust is going to enable the success of CJADC2. There's other subtleties in our success of Zero Trust, which JADC2 will benefit from. Data tags and labels is an example of that. That is critical for CJADC2. You need to be able to understand the data packets or the data that's going across so you could do your analytics, your visibility things. So there are commonalities between both programs that we are tackling in our program that is laying the groundwork for an easier path forward for JADC2. And we're working very closely with the joint staff and others to keep them up to date 
they're very tied with us and vice versa. And we are very aware of what's happening in JADC2. It's critical. And that gets to the idea, too, in Zero Trust, that you are not simply thinking about human users of any network or system, ultimately, but also automated users and all the things happening on micro segments and bots, whether they're your bots or the bad guy's bots. Yes, yes. So maybe discuss the thinking there. Beyond the user, which everybody typically says, of course, you have to identify and have have an identification of a user. Zero Trust goes much further than that. You have to actually identify a device. So it's the user and the devices that need to be authorized and authenticated before you can even get onto the network. So these are much more advanced concepts than we're implementing today on the Doden, on the Nipper and the Sipper. So the implementation of Zero Trust is really, it's a forcing function for implementing the absolute best practices in cybersecurity that we have been talking about for 20, 30 years, that for one reason or another, we've had very hard difficulties to implement individually within the Department of Defense. So finally, there's a program that can do that. But there's a concept in Zero Trust called policy information point, a policy enforcement point. So these these policies and these points of decision would look at the flow of data that's happening across the network. And if they don't like what they see or if something violates a policy that is not allowed, it will automatically essentially stop that that transmission. So a lot of what I would say is the noise that's in existing networks that are going across the DOD, they would cease to exist in a, in a zero trust world in the future. So the the networks will be kind of quieter. I mean, you'll have higher bandwidth, but the noise floor will be significantly cleaned up. And the traffic that's only going across uh, the networks would be traffic that's only allowed. And any traffic that's not allowed would be blocked as quickly and as early as possible. We're speaking with Randy Resnick, director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's office of the chief information officer. And it sounds like that would have a big effect on the way you approach security operation centers and network operation centers where there is less noise and therefore right. less engagement of people on. Right. So it's interesting that you bring that up because that's actually a huge current subject that we are entertaining now with JFHQ Doden, which is attached to U.S. Cybercom. Because the question is, in a, in a future zero trust infrastructure, what signals do they need to receive in order to command and control activity to stop adversary maneuvers. So in the event that an adversary is moving around, the noise on the network would be a, a lot lower. They would be able to see and detect needles and haystacks, uh, visibility and analytics due to technology that has uh, exploded just in the last two years, AI, for example, and uh, LLMs. So we're entering a phase now where the planets are lining up where I believe, and I've said this, we're going through almost a renaissance or a new phase in cybersecurity, defense. Folks have been very focused on offense for quite a while, but defense has always lagged in terms of actual implementation on the ground. And now I believe I see it is we're playing significant catch up and putting down true defenses for cybersecurity via zero trust but also technology is coming to bear now that didn't exist a few years ago to allow us to get past the human in the loop. And we could automate a lot of the things that have been um, problems in, the, in, the, in our past. 
but you would probably want to have some kind of, let's call it meta noise, as you reduce the noise in the network and therefore free up operators to do other things. You would right. still need to know, I would think, the trends in what it is that's being blocked, because somehow those have a way yes. of developing into yeah. something that will give so, you trouble. So that that information gets logged, and that those logs would be analyzed. So what gets blocked would be logged and analyzed and captured, but also the good traffic is also of interest because it's not only what's happening and what's flowing, but from an identity point of view, it would be nice to know what Tom looks like on a particular day so that if something unusual is happening at your desktop or your, your log on that is you know way off Tom's, let's say, biometric or your daily activity, that actually will get flagged. So Zero Trust has those subtleties too. And that is part of the implementation of Target is modeling some of these things as part of a multi-factor authentication and the continuing authentication throughout the day. That means you need to keep up getting back to the people aspect of this, keep up with where people, especially you know the those that are uniformed, that are moving around a lot and may end up transferred to another base, another camp, whatever city. Right. That, wait a minute, he was you know in Fort Hood or whatever they call it now last right. week and now he's on the west right. coast or something or she's on right. the west coast right and there there are unique pieces of information on our cat card as the example for the dod or the military where we can track a user at least from from one perspective wherever they are and wherever they're signing on if they're using that device they are uniquely identified and so that would be one way that we would do that. And finally, how are you getting the continued buy-in of the many, many quasi-independent components, both within the armed services, other large DOD agencies, to listen to what's happening from the CIO's office? I guess that's an eternal question. Yeah. So I've been very lucky in the sense that I have leadership above me that has, without question and in synchronous and synchronicity, have been championing the need to move to zero trust. It starts from the SecDef on down, at least in the DOD. And it's repeated numerous times, all the time. It's in everything. But if you recall, there was an EO14028, which came out from the president, which signed out the need to move to zero trust. So zero trust is much more than a DOD thing. It's an all of government, all of US federal government thing. And so we are partnering purposely with the FedCiv community to make sure that they know the direction that we're going, how we define zero trust, what our strategies are, and they have mimicked to the extent that they are doing so, they're mimicking our path, our definition, our way of thinking about zero trust. The IC community is also thinking of that. Surprising to me, the Five Eyes, NATO, and other allied partners are also looking at the Department of Defense because not only have we been really first maneuver in zero trust and defining all of it, but we're moving out much faster than industry. We are really lucky to have a, a, a leadership position and everybody is adopting uh, our work because our work is so extensive. It just saves them years of eventually getting to the same place. So it's a quick way for them to catch up and then to decide what they what they want to do. So getting back to DOD CIO, Honorable Sherman uh, has been a tremendous champion of Zero Trust. Everywhere we go, we talk about in conferences, ZT. We have agencies talking about it. And so essentially, it's an absolute mandate that everybody recognizes and they don't question it. So it's like I'm using one finger to open up a thousand pound door. It swings open. 
it's really not been a challenge, which has been a huge help for the portfolio office because that's allowed us uh, to move out extremely quickly. So you would think that we would have these challenges since the DOD is so large. That has not been the case. What has been challenging is resources and funds, but that is just an annual cycle and it's to be expected. An annual cycle that could begin any given random month of the year, <laughs> the way things operate. <laughs> Every month of the year, right. There's always a phase. Randy Resnick is director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's office of the Chief Information Officer. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. This was great. Appreciate it. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's. Um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking. 
that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.